Welcome back to another Cardinals off day podcast. The Cardinals rolled into this off day with a, a big win, a little bit of a change of pace from what they've been doing lately. And uh, we're here to talk about it, uh, as well as the uh, not so great games that preceded it. Uh, this is Ben Godar with me as always, my good friend, Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing a lot better. Uh, I did what I think a lot of people did last night where I was watching the game and I just kept tricking myself into continuing to watch it because they kept it, you know, they kept kind of inching closer. And then uh, in the ninth inning, I allowed hope to creep into my heart uh, only, only to have my heart broken uh, by the end of the game. Um, And so it was very good to have them uh, come out today and just you know really explode and kind of show what this offense can be when they get some hits with runners on base and so that was a very cathartic victory today and hopefully one uh that kind of opens the floodgates and sees a little more even production uh with runners on base moving forward yeah and how many runs they need when uh, jake woodford is starting or frankly uh, how many runs they've needed (laughs) when most anybody's starting so far this season but uh uh Ben, uh, we've uh, we've had a, a you know another week or so of games since we were last together. Uh, what have you learned? Well, I uh, I have learned that the impulse to approach baseball season like football season uh, is very strong, uh, and I think it's best to avoid much in the way of analysis unless it's like this is something that has happened. And it's pretty weird because the season is, you know, 10 percent, 15 percent done, as, as the case may be. Um, but what I also learned that really did not have much to do uh, with the Cardinals and had everything to do with today's game is that I hate Madison Bumgarner. And I have hated him for about a decade. And uh, I just, he's, he's such a fragile little pathetic snowflake on the mound. And it's just so obnoxious. And to see him now that his, he's gotten older and his skills have eroded and he's still doing his same tired gimmick. It's so pathetic and awful. Right. And I just absolutely, absolutely loved it when Wilson Contreras took like an upper deck home run hack at some meatball that Bumgarner served to him and then got upset with himself and yelled at himself. And then Madison Bumgarner uh, was, you know, using slang terms uh, involving women's anatomy towards him. And Contreras was just like, no, like he had none of it and just gave it right back. Then Bumgarner, because he's a coward, did not throw a pitch near the strike zone and walked Contreras because he didn't want anything to do with him. And Contreras gave him like the KBO home run bat flip uh, <laughs> and, and and went down to first triumphant like a professional wrestling heel. And it was just wonderful. And I, I think Wilson Contreras, obviously uh, I'm hashtag team Yachty and he has done a lot to win me over with all of us talk about how much he respects Yadier Molina. Uh, but I am over the top now for Wilson Contreras after he so deftly handled Madison Bumgardner's BS today. It was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Wilson Contreras, uh, 
has really shown us that he knows how to put on a show, um, you know, since he's been here. And, and in the last few games, he's been doing it uh, with his play, you know, um, with some, you know, with his bat and, you know, throwing some guys out and things. But with the, you know, stealing third and the tongue coming out and just the attitude and everything, uh, I, I think many of us are just coming to really appreciate uh, the, the, the entire Wilson Contreras experience. Uh, you know, Ben, something I've learned, I think we may have talked about this even early, early in spring training when these pitch clock games started, but I'm going to say it again now. Um, the pitch clock makes for such better announcers and broadcasts, um, unless Jim Edmonds is on the broadcast. And that is something <laughs> that I just continue to appreciate. Um, you know, I was not thrilled about the chip carry hire, but I have found him to be really pretty delightful. And I think when he and Thompson are on there together, um, just it leaves such short windows of time. And, and, and I, I kind of long thought even before the pitch clock started that that was really a lot of the root of the annoyance with the broadcast was just those long dead periods. And it just felt like it almost provoked everybody in the booth, the the announcer, the color guy, everybody to just kind of start pontificating and theorizing. And that's where you just really started to get, uh, you know, basically where it kind of got obnoxious and it, everything got further and further away from just kind of calling the game on the field. And the pitch clock brings it much closer to the game on the field, you know, because you get, you know, Chip Carey more or less calling the action on the field. You get Brad Thompson maybe chiming in with just a, a small bit of additional context, and then you're on to the next pitch. And that's, you know, frankly, as nature intended a baseball broadcast to be. Now, if you're watching a Jim Edmonds game, uh, you know, you might think that the sound is out of sync. You would have no way of knowing if your sound was out of sync with the picture because that man is just talking. There is no connection, <laughs> anything on the field. Um, you know, he could be, uh, he could be not at the stadium, right? He could be, he could not be seeing what's going on. It would have no bearing on the story he was telling or anything he was, he was saying, uh, he somehow gets worse and worse. They gave him fewer games this year. I hope he'll get less next year. The only reason I think that might not be the case is I don't think there's anyone that actually works at Bally Sports anymore. So it's not like there's any, you know, executive authority there to actually, you know, make a decision like that. So who knows if that'll be the case. But but setting aside the, the horror that is the 40 games that Jim Edmonds will broadcast this year, um, the pitch clock's definitely made for better announcing. And I've, I've enjoyed watching those games uh, more. So the... The Friday night broadcast by Jim Edmonds against the Pirates was like spoken word poetry about hitting. Like it had <laughs> nothing to do with anything in the game. It was really like incredible. It was him like against the game. Like <laughs> it, it was just a, a remarkable feat of announcing because it was so disconnected and terrible. Um, and he definitely drags Carrie down with him. Yes, uh, but I had to actually bring up the box scores because I thought I was losing my mind on Sunday when Edmonds remarked, uh, didn't Oviedo get the L yesterday, which he did not pitch on Saturday, yeah. the night, the, the, the day before, which Edmonds called, Carey had no answer for him, which yeah. the game Carey called as well, right? right. Like 
no, Contreras started that game, boys. I, I think it was Contreras, but like Oviedo did not start that game. Both right. of you called it. It was less than twenty or less than twenty-four hours ago, and you don't know. And then Kerry uh very helpfully told us after uh Wilson Contreras had the RBI single that Contreras was two for two with two RBIs in his last two plate appearances, forgetting in the last inning of the previous game, Contreras pinch hit and made an out. And I was just like, were you guys like drinking? Did you, did you just forget what happened yesterday? I mean, it was anyway, I don't want to get into just complaining about broadcasters, but I think it was just, it was such a long series that probably ran together for both of them in their own minds that uh, by the time Sunday rolled around, it was just kind of like all of the previous three games were just one game or something. Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, um, well, we're going to roll into we've got a, a few kind of uh, uh, main topics that uh, we want to uh, dive into today. And then we do have a number of uh, listener questions we're going to get to later on. Ben, I think the first topic we're going to jump into today, and this really seems to be at the root of what um, everybody we talk to is talking about. And I think it's every thing we kind of read on Twitter. And that is the question. Uh, is this team worse than we thought? So obviously the record so far is not good. Um, I think we all know that it's early in the season, but it's it's not the first week early yet either. So um, here we are, Ben, it's, it's April 19th. Um, have you seen anything so far that is leading you to believe or, or even just start to suspect that this team is is worse than you thought, uh, you know, kind of when we did our, our preseason predictions? Uh, no, I, you know, this is something where I think pretty much the entirety of our perception of this team can be, you know, reduced to the substandard uh, performance uh, by the lineup with runners in scoring position. You know, this is a team uh, entering play today, and we'll use there. There are various metrics for using hitting. You know, when I'm comparing teams, I like to use weighted runs created plus because it takes home park into account. Mm-hmm. And entering today, this team uh, was tied for fourth overall in weighted runs created plus with the Cubs and the Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays are a very good hitting team. They're the the Rays, it blew my mind. They're at 157. The Orioles are at 124. Then you have Atlanta and LA at 117 and the Cubs, Cardinals and Blue Jays at 112. Um, and so, you know, this is a team uh, that tends uh, to be a pretty deep on the offensive side and um, you know, their, uh, their big problem then has been uh, with runners in scoring position. And so it's, they've underperformed in that regard. And it's, I think led to some losses uh, and things have picked up the last couple of games against the Diamondbacks. And I think you're seeing more of what this team uh, is and will be. Um, and then the other side is the the starting rotation has gotten knocked around and uh, has not been good by any stretch. They're 20th in FIP, 
because of their home runs and uh, they're a little bit better in terms of XFIP in the overall uh, Major League Baseball rankings where they're still not like good, but they're 16th, which is, I think, about where I anticipated they would be was kind of yep. in the teens. But then when you look at earned run average, which is the way a lot of folks, you know, have kind of been trained mm-hmm. uh, to look at the team, you know, they're they're the eighth worst in baseball in terms of earned run average. And so what you have to ask yourself is, you know, is this team going to continue to be way worse than their fielding independent stats suggest when they have a good defense for the most part behind them? The outfield defense has not been very good, but I think, well, you know, that's, that's probably going to improve as the season goes on, but you have a very good, you know, infield defense. And so I think, I think, you're seeing in terms of run, runs allowed, they they have not been as good, but I think it's going to even out, um, and they'll be competing at the top of the division, which isn't yeah. very good at the end of the year. Yeah, and Ben, I I looked at exactly the same stats you just looked at: weighted runs created plus, you know, top five, and no doubts in my mind, they're they're excellent. Fielding independent pitching, they're right about middle of the pack, and and totally agreed. Uh, and their xFIP is much better. ERA is worse, but I think they'll be about middle of the pack in pitching. Um, the defense, I, I took a, a little bit of a peek at too, and I, I I wonder a little bit about their defense, and I don't think we have great defensive metrics this early in the season, so I don't really, I, I'm not going to hang my hat on any of this, but I did look at their outs above average, and they're, they're currently 19th in the league, and over the last several years, they've been uh, fourth, first, second, and fifth, which I think we know they've just consistently been a really, you know, top defensive team. Um, I think this is clearly uh, less... A solid defensive team than they've had for a number of years. I think they've they've definitely made a conscious choice to um, lean more into offensive production and at several positions uh, at the expense of of defense. And and sometimes it's just a question of the kind of platooning that they're doing. Um, you know, they do have some kind of options there. You know, but there are guys that they're utilizing. You know, like Burleson, like Walker. Um, you know, depending on how and where they're using, you know, Donovan and uh, Gorman. Um, you know, they are not rolling the the eight defensive team out there. You know, by any means, all the time. So the, I'm going to be honest. That's something I really do have my eye on, and I don't know because I, it's it's just going to be interesting to see, especially just how. Ollie kind of deploys these guys and how he deploys the outfield. Um, you know, if, if, you know, if, for example, we get a, uh, you know, a Burleson and Walker corner infield in, you know, 60% of the games, um, you know, that's gonna, uh, what effect is that going to have on the, uh, you know, on their overall defensive numbers? And, and particularly just in terms of run prevention for a team that has been satisfied to be middle of the pack in pitching and particularly to be middle of the pack in pitching by leaning into guys who pitch to contact and just trusting that their you know defense is going to make up for that. That's honestly something I'm going to keep my eye on because I just wonder if the, the kind of knock on ramifications for that could be 
uh, more than we expect. Those these are totally all unknowns at this point, but it's at least like something I'm going to keep my eye on. You know, the the other thing that's been interesting to me is how bad the team has been on the base paths. Yes, and, and I noticed like, that as well. And I went in preparation for this podcast. I checked the stats and, and they are they will not be updated for games on April 19th. Uh, but the, so this would be through April 18th. They're the third worst in baseball. So they're safe to say if you're listening to this, the Cardinals are one of the five worst teams on the base paths uh, through uh, April 19th. Okay. And, and last year they were a top 10 team, not great, but good. Um, and the year before they were, uh, fourth, uh, by fan, the fan graphs measure, which is very good. And so, you know, they're, they're losing seemingly an advantage there. Uh, they're, as you noted, losing, uh, defensive skill in the corner outfield spots with the choice to play Burley's bat and Walker's bat uh, while Walker is learning right field at the major league level and it shows uh, mm-hmm. and Burley lives up to that nickname right like yeah. you know there's a reason Walker was joking with him about whether or not they weighed the same amount <laughs> um, <laughs> when they were waiting to, to do the parade on opening day uh, in that video, which was very endearing, uh, but also like, you know, he's not Tyler O'Neill out there. And yeah. And, so- and, and, and keep in mind, folks, like, I mean, we're, we're comparing this to like last season when you, you know, for, for much of the season, you had Carlson, O'Neill, Harrison Bader. So, Yeah. yeah. If it was in the air, it was an out yeah. uh, last year uh, when Bader, especially when Bader was out there. But even when you had, you know, O'Neill, Newtbar. Right. And, and, yeah, and Newtbar is, like, is, is of that class as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but when you when you move these elite corner outfielders because they can handle center, you think. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you fill in behind them with a bat first player. You know, you're losing defensive skill at two positions you're losing defensive skill in center and then you're losing defensive skill in left and it also happens to be you're losing defensive skill in right depending on the alignment Um, and so uh, when you have structured your pitching staff to be pitched to contact use the dead ball and use your defense and then you make the conscious choice to sacrifice defense for hitting uh, you're going to have uh, potentially some some ugly games, especially when the ball's hit in the air to the outfield because you can't dig yourself out of holes either because you can't get those strikeouts to bail yourself out. And I think it can snowball on this rotation a lot, and I think uh, that has been a problem. But I don't think it's going to be uh, as bad as it has been moving forward for the rotation. It's just highly unlikely that will be the case. I I don't think so either. And I think both the defensive metric and the base running metric are pretty volatile. And so I think those could be, could still be aberrations. And we could look at those in a month and a half and they're, they're, um, they're coming back to something closer to what we hoped they would be. I definitely think their defense is going to be worse this year, but it may not be as bad as it is right now, but I think they're both worth, worth keeping an eye on. And I do think that if they stay kind of as bad as they are right now, 
And if the pitching is the kind of middling pitching that it just is going to be, I mean, this pitching is not going to get better than it than than middling. You know, there's no there's no version of this pitching staff that becomes a, a good pitching staff. That's just not in the cards. No. Um, even with a you know elite offense, I don't think that this you know team is really um, you know uh, much more than a, a very fringe playoff chance. Um, you know, if uh, they, they kind of they need those, um, you know, they, they need the defense and the base running. They kind of need those little extras there, um, you know, to, to basically yes. to, 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 to frankly, in, in the fantasy baseball terms, to punt pitching to the extent that this organization has punted pitching for the last, you know, several years. Um, and uh, so, Ben, just kind of slight segue here, speaking about potentially punting pitching. Um, what about Jordan Hicks? I think Jordan Hicks uh, was incredibly frustrating to watch and terrible uh, <laughs> early in the season. Really, the last two days, he was decent. Uh, but before that, he was so horrible. Um, but I also thought it was really, really weird how you know some of the folks like at STL Today and you know, some of the other St. Louis media establishment outlets just immediately turned on him. And, and especially when he exercised his right, given his amount of service time, not to go to the minors uh, to try to, you know, iron things out. And I, I saw like a bunch of commentary along the lines of like, hasn't been good since before COVID. I, I saw that and this, that, and the other. And well, I was kind I, well, I was surprised to hear that because. Well, I, um, I, I think that's a hundred percent true, Ben. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I don't think it is at all. I think it's wrong. And I think it's misleading. I think he, that he, he, he hasn't, he, he's had a 72 ERA plus since before COVID he's had a negative one wins above replacement since before COVID he has not had a positive wins above replacement at any point since before COVID. I don't think he has been, he, he has not been, uh, he, he literally, he, he has not bobbed above replacement level at any point since oh, before he, COVID. He was, he was a very good reliever last year. And this is what folks are doing is they're taking the starter and the reliever numbers. And I know it's a small sample size. I'm, I'm not here to say that. But the idea that he was not a good relief pitcher last year is just incorrect. He he had a FIP of 3.06, an ex-FIP of, of 3.20. Um, and, you know, what folks have done is they've just gone and looked at that overall number, which is not pretty. But I don't think anyone thought the whole, um, you know, and, and also as a reliever, opposing batters had a weighted on base average of 268 against him last year. Now that was only in 35 innings. Don't get me wrong, but that was the 35 most recent innings before this year. He was bad when they did the, we're going to convert him as a starter at the major league level experiment, which was ill-advised um, and had the results that a lot of people thought, but after they moved him back to the bullpen last year, he was, a good reliever. 
And so this whole thing of like, we need to cut bait on this guy and get him out of the organization after like six innings pitched at the start of 2023, I thought was a little weird. Like, you know, it's, it looks very bad. Should he have accepted a minor league assignment? Yeah, I think he probably should have, although he would have sacrificed his ability to become a free agent if he would have done that. But I totally understand why the team didn't DFA him and they're trying to help him work through it. And now we've got, you know, two innings pitched of pretty good pitching. And I think he shaved almost three runs off of his ERA because it's that early in the season. I mean, right. if he yeah, puts it's, together I think it's down to 10 now, yeah, so. well, no, I was going to say eight, but maybe <laughs> it is 10. Um, and so like, that's how early it is. You can be as catastrophically bad as Jordan Hicks was to start this year. And then you can reduce your ERA by one third uh, in two, in two innings pitched worth of a performance. And so I, you know, like he throws over a hundred to me, everyone's been talking about, uh, you know, his, his sinker. And I think teams have consciously tried to lay off of it because he, it just has so much movement. He's never really been able to harness it. And, uh, and that has also had a negative impact on his slider, which was a very good pitch for him last year. Uh, you know, when he really in relief kind of became the pitcher, I think people thought he might be to an extent. And so, you know, if he can get that sinker ironed out, he's a useful reliever and maybe even a good one. You know, they need someone to handle the sixth and seventh inning. And, you know, if Jordan Hicks is in that mix come June, it would not terribly surprise me because, you know, relievers are very volatile as well. So I'm someone I had, and I think the coverage and the kind of the Twitter reaction to him is probably causing me to be a little more like, hold on just a minute here. Um, but I, I agree with the path the Cardinals are taking. That's not to say I think they should keep him on the roster until the end of the year if he doesn't improve. But I think cutting bait now is a poor choice uh, because you would be losing someone who could help your team win games. But you would also, I think, be sending an, a message that other players might not like, that the team does not have your back if you have struggles over a small amount of time and a small uh, amount of performance. And I, I think that's something that is also important to keep in mind is, you know, players understand the game is, is peaks and valleys for a lot of people. And I, I think they are a lot more forgiving about guys who go through a rough patch or a slump uh, than fans are, especially in the social media age. And so I, I think that's another dynamic that hasn't been given proper consideration in the Hicks dialogue uh, to date. Yeah, well, I, I mean, Ben, I, you, you make a couple good points there, and, and you're right. I, I didn't really give fair consideration to the the difference in last season, and Hicks's uh, numbers last season as a reliever versus as a starter. So that's fair. Um, and you know, you're also right in terms of just what amount of, you know, what amount of consideration do they need to give him this year? So he's in the last year of his contract, right? He's there. It's a $1.8 million. He's, he's essentially, he's a, a free agent that they signed on a one-year deal is what he is this year. And he's very yep. similar to any other reliever that they would bring in. 
and sign on a on a one year deal. So, you know, what do they typically you know do with those guys? Uh, how much leash do they you know do they give them? Um, and when you look at it through that framework, yeah, do you know are they, do they typically cut one of those guys on April nineteenth? Um, you know, that's that is pretty early. You're, so, um, so I think. Uh, yeah, the, you know, just in terms of an absolute outright DFA, um, you know, maybe it's early for that, but uh, I don't know that the leash is going to be that much longer for a guy that that's literally the only other option they have, you know, I mean, and, and we have seen this with these one year guys, you know, it's just there, you do say, at a certain point, you just say, well, it didn't work out. And so, and that's, that's really the next step with him. Um, and the last outing was a little better um, because they just, they don't have anywhere to put him. And so, um, you know, there's only so much, um, you know, they can give him. So, um, you know, I mean, I could see them giving him, you know, into, you know, the first week or two of May, um, you know, and just kind of scrolling him away for, um, you know, the, the lowest leverage innings they can possibly find and, you know, giving him a few more chances at those. And if he can build some success, but, you know, if, if he sees, you know, three, four more of those that are just disasters, you know, I think his time is, I think his time is done. And I think, you know, rightfully so. And I guess I'm less optimistic based on that reliever time we saw with them last year than you. I, I just kind of feel like when I look at the whole of his his body of work, um, I just don't see enough success there that I'm particularly optimistic. So um, uh, anyway, it'll be, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, it'd be great if you, you know, did something because they certainly need pitching. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I was just curious because uh, what this reminded me of in terms of a of a you know kind of proven closer type reliever just losing it right mm -hmm. and 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 it's not really an apples to apples comparison at all cuz Hicks has much better stuff but it reminded me a lot of Ryan Franklin in that's, 2011 yeah that's that's who I someone I thought of as well and he had uh, an eight four six ERA, a six eight nine FIP, and a four three nine xFIP. He was negative one point two FWAR, and he got twenty seven and two thirds innings uh, with the Cardinals uh, before they cut bait. So about four or five times as many innings as Hicks has had to date, and I think his problems also kicked in a little bit later. But so. You know, like to me, I think it's a June. It's probably June. I, yeah. I, I think that would be maybe when they would do something like DFA him and try to just force him to the minors. But, you know, he has had a couple uh, positive appearances in a row and hopefully he can build on it. Um, and because uh, he, he could be a, a useful or as Ollie Marmal had described him, uh, indirectly twice to the media usable quote unquote usable <laughs> yeah. yeah and i was just like that is just like really passive aggressive i you know i would not want ollie marmal as my in-law um and so uh it, that was uh that was kind of i think a shot across the bow like you are not even usable jordan 
Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see, especially because Marmal seems to be insane. Uh, how he handles uh, this situation will be interesting, and how he handles the media component as well. It'll it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out on that. Something else we're going to keep an eye out on. Um, we uh, we know that there are some kind of maybe moving parts coming up soon. Uh, Adam Wainwright had uh, his first rehab start um, today as we record, and it'll be yesterday as you folks uh, listen to this on the off day. Um, the Cardinals announced that he would uh, uh, make another rehab start five days later. And the expectation is, assuming that that second one goes well as well, um, probably be back in the rotation after that. So really, um, in more or less, you know, 10 days, um, there'll be a change in the rotation, um, you know, if not before through injury or something else. Um, and then, of course, a uh, lot of ongoing conversation about outfield playing time as well, um, since Newbar has returned and how things are going to shake out there and who should play there. And Ben, one thing you and I have talked about um, kind of through the preseason and before is just how much the the Cardinals look at underlying skills. And I know we wanted to really highlight just for folks, if, if you're not looking at baseball savant, like baseball savant is probably the best thing you can look at to, to in, in a lot of ways, I would say, see what the Cardinals see when they are looking at and evaluating these players, I think. Um, I, I just feel like a lot of folks still look at traditional stats um, as they're, uh, you know, just really looking at, you know, whether it's pitching, whether it's hitting. And um, so many of those numbers are either just not great evaluations in general, or they trail way behind. There's just various kind of asterisks with them. And the, the baseball savant numbers, which are essentially all stat cast, you know, derived things, um, they... Uh, they they really come into focus very very fast and they are pretty like raw measures of you know most of these skills that you see and as we've said before the other just really cool thing about the baseball savant interface is it looks like a video game right with the little sliders for each player that you move from like zero up to a hundred so it's just at a glance it's just honestly like very easy to like look at a player and see like, oh, this guy's good. Oh, this guy is not good <laughs> because the very good players, the sliders are all pushed over close to 100 and they're red. And the guys that are not so good, they're all the way in the other direction and they're all blue. And so just as like a really basic conversation about like what are what have we seen and I think what are we going to see with some of these, I really think you can just go to Savant and, and it, it gives you some of these answers. So on the rotation question, for example, Take a look at Jake Woodford's baseball savant page. <laughs> like, it's one of the worst baseball savant pages you're ever going to see. Like, everything is all the way to the left. He's in the bottom in every single measurable thing because Jake Woodford just does not have much in the way of stuff. The only thing Jake Woodford really does is he doesn't walk people. And that's, uh, you know, what allows him to be serviceable enough that they can move him into the rotation as a, as a back end fill in guy. But clearly he is the guy that they're going to move out when Adam Wainwright can come in there. By the same token, when you look at the outfield guys, this is where like Burleson really popped to me this season when he, you know, suddenly had enough kind of data to show up on there. And we'd heard about how enamored they were with his underlying metrics. 
And holy cow, all of Burleson's batted ball data is just absolutely elite and just, you know, uh, uh, way, way, way on the high end of the charts. And you look at that and then you suddenly understand, oh, I see why Burleson is batting second every day. And I see why Burleson is still in the lineup when when Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill are kind of maybe a little more, you know, moved into a little bit more of a a part-time and and platooning kind of role. Um, That's what the Cardinals are looking at. And that's that kind of underlying, you know, the representation anyway of that underlying skill set that they're, they're looking at. And it's also very informative. If you're wondering why Tyler O'Neill is starting over Dylan Carlson, um, it's because he hits the ball really hard and runs really fast. And he hasn't been good in terms of fielding the ball uh, yet this year, but the team believes in his ability to again, be an elite defensive outfielder because of those measurable skills and and that's really what you touched on ben that i like like the baseball savant information is a direct measurement of how good players do things um you know it's speed compared to everyone else because they know how fast you are um you know it's outs above average and includes speed so their defensive, the defensive metric measures how hard you throw it, how fast the runner was running that you're trying to put out, what happens on the ball that's hit as hard at the angle and the drop uh, that you're fielding if you're in the outfield or on the ground if you're on the infield, how often is that a hit? And so they're, they're taking all of those measurables and they're looking at your specific performance on the field what happened and and what usually happens in those situations based on data for the league as a whole. And so it's a much more direct reflection of an individual player's performance than batting average, which is indirect, um, base percentage, which is indirect, slugging indirect, ERA indirect. So uh, it's very nice. And if you, you know, you compare O'Neill's to Carlson's, O'Neill looks a lot better. Uh, Newt Barr as well. Yeah. And, and Jordan Walker, at least in terms of uh, hitting the ball hard, he looks like he's going to – he has the potential and may very well be an elite uh, exit velocity guy, and it's just kind of a question of how is he going to adjust you know, to big, to big league pitching. But so uh, it, that's what the Cardinals are really using to make these roster decisions, and it's, it's why it should not surprise you, you know, when they say something like, you know, the last roster choice was between Walker and Carlson or, you know, Burleson was already on the team ahead of Carlson because he hits the ball so much better. And, um, and so, you know, if, if you're looking at all that and then you're thinking to yourself, well, why on earth would they not trade Carlson for Juan Soto? I don't really have that answer for you. Um, but it helps you understand how they're, uh, assigning playing time amongst the current players and and roster spots yeah. among them as well yeah and i and you know uh, take a look at lars newbar's 2022 baseball savant page i mean it is eye-popping it's one of the most uh, it's one of the best pages you'll ever see and and it's a real illustration of what how 
how it is that he, you know, quote unquote, came out of nowhere. I mean, he was just elite at everything. I mean, he just blew everyone away. And that's how he went from being a guy that no one, you know, ever heard of to being, you know, uh, uh, you know, a superstar of baseball who I believe has more Instagram followers than the St. Louis Cardinals official account now. Um, you know, and a guy I, I took a look on there uh, at recently was uh, Taylor Motter, who I have posted snarky things about from the Cardinals off day account when I have been frustrated at watching his, uh, you know, garbage defense and uh, whatnot out there and just wondering why this 33 year old AAA player is on the team at all, which I still have questions about. But, uh, you know, guess what? Taylor Motter uh, has elite exit velocity. Um, and, you know, and also they just don't really have anybody else that they felt they could plug in as a, you know, kind of backup middle infielder, which is, you know, more of a just overall organizational depth uh, deficiency is really the biggest reason. But, but really, I think that's what I see there that tells me, oh, that's why the Cardinals kind of went after this guy. And that's why they gave him the shot that he had is, that's something that he's he is bringing to the table that that piqued their interest and and maintained their interest enough that he's you know he's still up there and he's still um, you know getting shots. So um, Ben, shall we uh, shall we dive into some listener questions? Yes. All right. So um, our top two questions. I'm going to group these together. Corey Peace asks. Why do I keep watching this? And Greg Maturin asks, man, what the fuck? Ben, would you like to take those uh, one at a time or uh, together? Uh, you keep watching it uh, because you love baseball and there are highs and lows and the lows make the enjoyment of the highs that much better. And uh, you also love the St. Louis Cardinals for better or worse, and you would probably feel worse about yourself if you gave up on them in April uh, than if you continued to watch them uh, through a, an early season slump. Yeah. Moving on uh, to the next question, which is from Jake Wright uh, at BCN Jake. And Jake asks, why is everyone trying to read something into Flaherty's actions after getting pulled? Quote, competitive starter upset after getting the hook in big moment, end quote, isn't exactly news. I mean, have these people heard of Bob Gibson? Um, yeah, I... Uh... And I guess I haven't necessarily seen the folks who are uh, who are reading into this. And uh, by the way, I think I've got a, a ambulance or fire or something that's probably going to continue past my house here in a minute. So uh, we may have uh, uh, sirens moving past here, Ben. So just a little a uh, uh, little extra color for our listeners at home potentially. Um, I, I'm just I am not one for. Uh, reading the emotions or the attitudes of players and then assigning um, assigning anything to it. I just think that's ridiculous, frankly. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like you, you can't, um, who, who knows what lies in the hearts of men, Ben? That's what I'm saying here. And it just gets into this weird place where it's like, there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. And um, it's just everything, uh, everything about that just gets kind of gross. And you know, you, you know who I always think about whenever this comes around is, do you remember Aramis Ramirez? Um, 
longtime Cub and Pirate and Brewer, and he, I think he played for everybody in the Central except for the Cardinals. And if you recall, he had this just really like laid back um, demeanor. And so like he wouldn't like if he misplayed a ball or if he struck out or something, he never was like demonstrative. Um, and people would you you would see fans like say he was like lazy or he didn't care or, you know, he got that kind of thing like hurled at him all the time. He was an incredible player. I mean, he was not like a Hall of Fame player, but he was a hall of the very, very good, you know, player. And he, he never deserved that. He was a, he was a great player. That was just the way he was as a, as a person. And frankly, he was probably a much happier person than somebody who, you know, runs hot and cold. Um, you know, he, I'm sure he was a much more pleasant person to be around than Madison Bumgarner. So, um, <laughs> like, uh, so anyway, uh, I don't care how people read Jack Flaherty. I think Jack Flaherty should, um, react however his emotions lead him to react and you know n nothing wrong with it I think Flaherty had a really good quote after the game and it was a along the lines of you know the and the media feeds off of this too or feeds looks at this and tries to feed it right like yeah you know they are they are influenced by comments on social media you know that type of thing yeah. and you know, Flaherty said something along the lines of, I want the ball in my hand. I don't want to be pulled out of the game. If you want to be pulled out of the game in that situation, you sh probably shouldn't be playing Major League Baseball or, or something along those lines. And it's like, and we've talked about this before, Ben, that all of these guys, you know, at some level are insane. They, yes. they are not wired like normal people. Right. And none of these guys are like, oh, I hope I don't go in to the game today. You know, please coach, pull me out. No, none of them are doing that. They all right. want the ball if they're yeah. a pitcher. They all want to be in the batter's box if they're a hitter because they feel like, like they can get a hit to help their team win or they can get outs to help their team win. Mm -hmm. And and you see it over and over again. And, I, you know, do I think it's it's unprofessional, some of the reactions? Like, in particular, I think Max Scherzer is is – a lunatic and that's why he's going to the hall of fame but like you know like he'll like scream at the manager or like, like stare him down that type of thing and it's like oh that's max scherzer and someone who's listening might be like well he's a cy young award winner he deserves it well do you think his mentality was any different before he you know ascended to the highest ranks of the game no it wasn't and, right, and right but the, the, and that's also, okay the, there's also you know sighing winners that don't have that mentality. and <laughs> yeah. there's also yeah. you know and there's also like john rocker who'd had that mentality who was uh you know garbage right so yeah like, it's we just get it just gets into a weird place when it's like we decide and, like what's yeah yeah and also it's like it's in hd now and you can see just how annoyed he looks and right. they have way more cameras now, you right. know, like you, you can see just, just we how see it. not yes. sweat and pine tar it was on his glove. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Like we get a we get a much clearer view of how unhappy a guy is after he's been pulled out of the game in this day and age. And and so I like the analogy to, to Bob Gibson, who was 
infamously salty yeah. and did not like to be pulled out of games either. Yeah. This it, this is a dynamic that goes back decades. Right. And, and that said, it is always a, a, a player who gives you some color. There is always, the, I, I do appreciate the entertainment value there. I will say that for sure. Um, Cards Talk asks, with Wilking nearing a return along with Libby and Herrera begging for a 26-man spot, what roster moves, if any, do you think we will see in the near future? Uh, we already kind of touched on the, the Wainwright move, which they've basically told us is, is imminent. Um, ben, any others, um, these or others that you see as being kind of imminent? Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, you'll see probably Cabrera or uh, Romero go down uh, to the minors for to clear a spot for Wainwright. Although it's possible they could just send uh, Woodford down. I think uh, at that time, I, so I think it'll be one of those three guys, which we talked about. And then I think Will King, they want in the big league bullpen and they want him to compete and maybe even win the opportunity to be throwing high leverage innings. And so, you know, whoever's left over, it wouldn't surprise me if with, especially with Hicks's status, that makes Woodford more expendable because Woodford has virtually no upside. Um, and so you can use Hicks for an inning or two um, in blowout games. And then, you know, you don't need Woodford and you can have Wilking uh, up at the major league level, you know, right. seeing what he can do. I, I, Because he's a rule five pick, they've got to make room for him. And yeah. so I, it wouldn't be surprised me if Woodford and then they send Woodford down, maybe plug him into the, the AAA rotation, basically treat him like they did last year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they would eventually like, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Woodford go down, Woodford come up, uh, you know, maybe even a couple times. I think they would eventually like to see Woodford in kind of a swingman role up here. And I do think that, that, that again, that one, skill you'll see on his baseball savant page that we talked about the fact that he doesn't walk anybody um i, I think what i think woodford honestly offers you that just as a like you know what we're getting blown out like we just need a, just need somebody in there just to throw the ball and we just don't want to waste anybody else to be honest like woodford's kind of your best guy for that you don't want hicks doing that because hicks is going to go in there and uh you know walk eight guys and then you got to go to somebody you know what i mean hicks doesn't give you that and, and you don't really want to use kind of other relievers in that role so potentially he, you know he could come back up there but um now ben i i more or less um kind of with you um on that um you know we didn't really touch on on liberator there and i think that's kind of an interesting question because you know if if uh it seems like you know uh it, it's going to be uh you know, Wainwright coming in, um, you know, in, in this first opening here, when, you know, who, you know, when, when does Libertor come in? Do you think it's just, uh, you know, injury, basically? Is it just first injury Libertor's in? Yeah, I don't think Jake Woodford, after Wainwright bumps him out of the rotation, I don't think Woodford uh, is the sixth guy like i don't think he's the next guy up after oh right the next right, entry. right i think it's it's liberator yeah, so yeah um so i i think they're gonna 
let him continue to like prove himself. Yeah. Um, and you know, and go from there. So I, I think that's probably about right. Well, and I mean, unless, unless Flaherty goes back to that 30% walk rate, I mean, that was the only thing that looked like it could maybe be, uh, you know, doing that, but otherwise, I mean, I think, you know, uh, the other guys in the rotation are not going anywhere, you know, uh, unless there's an injury. So, yeah. All right. Uh, moving along to our next question, we have uh, Ben Wheeler at underscore Ben Wheeler asks, will the starting pitchers pitching staff overall set the single season uh, batting average on balls and play record? Ben, I'm not really, is this a thing? Is this a thing people are watching? I'm not, I, I feel like I'm, I'm out of the loop on this. Um, so I had a tweet about how high their batting average on balls and play was uh, as starting rotation uh, through uh, the first few series. Mm-hmm. And I think this might be in response to that. Um, but right now, uh, Ben, just to provide a little bit of context to you and our listeners, uh, entering play, uh, before the off days. So entering play on April 19th, the Cincinnati Reds were actually allowing a 355 batting average on balls in play, which is number one, the highest in the majors. The Cardinals were number two at 341. The White Sox, number three at 335. Philly number four at 320 and Baltimore number five at 310. And for some historical context about uh, how difficult it would be for a pitching staff to maintain that high of a batting average on balls in play allowed, um, the highest in history is 367. Uh, and I don't even, it's from 1946, and I don't know uh, exactly uh, what what is MRS? <laughs> what team is that? Do you know? Uh, that that stands for Mrs. Ben. Um, oh. And, uh, no. <laughs> so I, here I am. I'm it was from the uh, All-American really Girls answer. Professional Baseball League. Um, but so... Uh, Cincinnati in, in 2023 is like the first team that's not from the forties. And then weirdly, you know, you have a bunch of 2020 stuff cause it was a short season. Um, but you have, uh, or excuse me, Cincinnati, the, the current reds and the current Cardinals and the current white Sox. So like if they finished where they are right now, they would be in the top six all time. Um, mm-hmm. but like, only one team has has finished above uh, 331 like in the last 50 years. So like mm-hmm. this is all just a way of saying like with where glove technology is and baseball savant allows you to position fielders, right. it's highly unlikely that they're going to set any sort of BABIP, BABIP record. Right. But they have had really, really bad batting average on balls in play so far this year. Like if it, if they kept this up all season, it would be top 10, maybe even top five worse all time. Well, that's interesting. Well, I guess we'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I know, you know, it's, 
you know, BABIP is mostly kind of flat, but there are certain things that influence it a, a bit. So on a team level, it would be interesting to kind of see what would, what could do that. So, um, all right, Trev asks, and he's got kind of a few questions here, but I'm going to kind of zero in towards the end of his questions because it's kind of on the same area here. He asks, hot or cold on Ollie post O'Neill incident? He always seemed really sharp to me. The O'Neill stuff seems really out of character. What is it we don't know? I, I think I've been thinking about this, Ben, after our last conversation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Marmol uh, more and more reminds me of Joe Pesci's character from Goodfellas, oh. and and uh, and it feels to me like the home plate umpires when he starts chirping a little bit, they tell him to go get a shine box, <laughs> and and then he goes nuts, and they like eject him and laugh at him um, because they know they that he won't beat them to death at a bar because he's not Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. Um, but but all of this seems to me it really makes me wonder what is is Scoop is Skip Schumacher excuse me a like a an Ollie Marmol whisper like was he able to like kind of keep him ratcheted down a notch or two and interact more with players and kind of handle that clubhouse better uh, as a diplomat than what Marmol is capable of? Like what is, what was Skip Schumacher's role and how important was he to Ali Marmol's success as a manager last year? Um, sub question, how important was Albert Pujols landlord and business partner <laughs> in performing some of those same functions? Where like, if you're a player and Albert Pujols comes to you, what do you, what do you say except like yes sir i will i will i will try harder in the future to be at your expectation level for me like see you you know what i'm saying i i know what you're saying ben and i the problem is i have two contradictory impulses at the same time right now because i have the the first impulse which is just that like i'm not in the room with these guys i don't know these guys so I just like, I hate to speculate about their interpersonal stuff. So I like, I really, I really strongly have that impulse, but then I also have the thing where like every vibe I get from like Ollie and just based on like all of these things that keep happening, lead me to exactly the same conclusions <laughs> that you're saying right here. So like, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of like, we talked about just the, it just seems like there's just a lot of conflict, um, you know, with, you know, whether it's with CB Buckner, whether it's with all the staff leaving, whether it's just these kind of, you know, the feud with O'Neill, just the kind of the coarseness with some of the things he says about the, the team, um, you know, and you make a good point. It's definitely the tenor of it has been different this year. And is it is it some of those personalities that aren't there? You know, is it just that, you know, aren't we all on our best behavior our first day, our first week on the job? And isn't there a point then where it's like, okay, I'm settled in and maybe I'm going to, you know, be my full self now or whatnot? I don't know. Um, and I do, um, I, you know, I, I still, I mean, I, I do think, you know, Ollie does a really excellent job, I think, of managing the roster and 
um, you know, putting, uh, uh, you know, putting guys in, in good positions, um, leveraging platoons, just a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, better than Schilt, a million miles, of course, better than Matheny. So there's still a lot of positives I see to kind of Marmol overall. So I just keep hoping that some of this kind of interpersonal conflict stuff is going to not not linger or not be kind become the sort of defining thing of of him because if it is you know i don't think he's going to be around for a very long time well it it seems like mosaloc and dewitt are much quicker to cut bait on their failed hires as manager after matheny like yes you know they let him tank the franchise for a few years cost them multiple postseason series um and then with shill it was just like you're out here and yep. so if you're marmal you you i would think would be aware of the fact that they seem to no longer care about you know uh giving you as many opportunities as possible to succeed so oh, yeah. hopefully uh hopefully the early season is just kind of a weird anomaly for his tenure as manager and it lasts many years and is very successful yep. uh we have a question from Sashin Parikh, and uh, Sashin has two questions. Jordan Walker has a clear area of needed improvement, ground ball launch angle. Given the outfield depth, should he get some time at AAA to work specifically on this? What do you think? Uh, absolutely not. Um, and I hear people talk about this, and... Um, you know, Jordan Walker is ready for the major leagues. And I think the things that Jordan Walker needs to work on, he needs to work on at the major league level. And so, um, you know, and, and, and frankly, like, we haven't seen that much struggle out of Jordan Walker, right? I think I feel like folks are a little, qu you know, quick on this. It's like, um, you know, I mean, he, he, he performed very well, like his first couple weeks. And then we saw about a, you know, week and a half or so of, uh, not such good performance. And it's like, oh, maybe he should go, maybe he should go down, right? Like give, give the man some time. He's 20 years old. And, and really it seems like what it comes down to is like, oh, well, you know, maybe he's, you know, needs to work on, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, hitting major league sliders and, and, you know, not, not hitting as many ground balls on essentially major league quality, uh, breaking and off speed pitches. Well, he's not going to see major league quality breaking and off speed pitches at AAA. He's not. If you send him to AAA, he's going to go, you know, travel to, you know, lovely cities like Des Moines, Iowa, and, you know, crush the ball into the night and just travel around for a while. It's just, it's not, it, he's not, he's not going to get the benefit there. And I think there's just this misconception that like you can go there and, and and fix whatever it was and then come back and then you're you're just magically at this higher level and some of that work you have to do at the major league level especially when you're 20 and it's in the cardinals best interest to let him do that and you've also got to get over this idea that if there's you know a, a moment in time that it's possible that jordan walker is not performing maybe at quite the level that Dylan Carlson could, that you immediately should get Dylan Carlson in there. Dylan Carlson does not offer this organization the, the future value and frankly, the present value that Jordan Walker does. It is, you want to, you, you want to uh, nurture Jordan Walker 
You want to nurture Jordan Walker's development, and it is worth the time you spend nurturing Jordan Walker's development, and that is what they should do. Now, if it were to get significantly worse, and if it were to just, you know, really, really, um, I mean, obviously, there's a point where that changes, right? There's a point where if he's just completely lost, if he's just completely frustrated and overmatched, yes, then maybe, you know, you do kind of send him down to reset, but we're nowhere near that. That's, That's what I would say to that question. Yeah, I think that's a good point is you're not going to see the because really what we're talking about now is the ability to make adjustments at the major league level. And that's something that you need to learn to do at the major league level. And um, and what he's getting now, he's getting a lot of a lot of breaking pitches down in a way he's rolling over on some of them. He's striking out on some of them. And so the question is, how how does he respond to that? Yeah. And it would be wrong for the organization to be like, well, they've started throwing you sliders away. You need to go to AAA. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think you need to let him find his way through this because if he can't do that then you know you you have bigger problems you know with the help of the coaching staff those types of things i'm not saying you just are like well good luck man figure it out you know he has support here to help him be a successful here in st louis to help him be a successful major leaguer and you know he you know this wasn't going to be him you know doing albert Pujols 2.0 rookie year, you know, like Mm -hmm. there were going to be bumps in the road and, you know, we've seen a little bit of one and it's, as you said, it hasn't been very long. He had a couple hits today and, you know, we'll, we'll see where the, the rest of uh, the month and the weeks ahead take him. So um, hopefully he's able to improve things. Uh, All right. Sashina has a second question. Uh, how do you balance Donovan and Gorman's playing time given their positional overlap? Gorman needs second base reps to continue improving and to maximize his value. And given the outfield depth, Donovan's positional flexibility isn't really as useful for the cards. Um, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's a good question. I think it's one of those things we talked about how, um, you know, Ollie has to kind of, uh, balance some of these things. I think he generally does a pretty good job with that. Um, you know, I think we've seen Donovan get a lot more starts there. I think that's kind of appropriate. Uh, Gorman, I think they really basically just don't want to let Gorman uh, become Nelson Cruz in his early 20s. So I think with Gorman, you know, they just they want to see him get some time at second. They they want to give him, um, you know, several of those kind of third base uh, off days over there. And I think that's enough for them. I do think they're a little resigned to the fact that with Donovan and with, you know, Edmund possibly um, being back in the mix at whatever time Mason Wynn comes up. When you just look at the six years of club control that they have with Gorman, and of course the fact that uh, Arenado is going to be here throughout that time, uh, Gorman looks to probably be playing quite a bit of, uh, of designated hitter. So um, yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of what they're what they're looking at, and I think that's more or less the breakdown we're going to see. So I think you'll see Donovan primarily at second base, but you know we've seen him still around the infield a little bit. Um, I don't know that we're going to see him in the outfield, maybe a time or two, but um, 
it's pretty unnecessary with all the outfielders they have at this point. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see, just as you said, um, if Arenado has the day off, Gorman's going to start at third, and they're going to give Arenado the day off against a righty. And so if you give him 10, 12 days off throughout the season, you know, then you sprinkle Gorman in at second. You know, Donovan can spell Goldschmidt at first like he did this week. Yeah. Uh, if you if you feel compelled to get both of them in the lineup, um, maybe you're facing a particularly tough right-hander and you want to go with like an all left-handed outfield look, you know, you could do that as well with Gorman then at second. Um, and I'm kind of curious to see if if they start encouraging Gorman to learn first base as the uh, heir to Goldschmidt. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, cause that seems like a potential fit as well. I don't think that's going to happen this year, but it seems like something they might encourage him to do in the off season. So, well, I mean, yeah, I agree unless, with you. Unless Jordan Walker doesn't take to uh, the outfield, in which case Jordan Walker will be the one learning first base. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. But with his sprint speed and arm, I, he, you know, putting looks, him at he first looks like base. he's going to be able to handle the outfield, I think. So. Yeah. He, he just needs to, to get more red under his belt uh it seems like yes agreed uh newt asks uh, and this is newt n-e-w-t this is newt not n-o-o-t i just think everyone should should be aware of that uh who is the odd man out in the outfield well i think pretty clearly dylan carlson right yeah. like i i you know in terms of performance especially against uh right-handed pitching you know, he's just not very good. Yeah. So I, I think he's the odd man out. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to like, uh, I, I hate to say like, I've, I, you know, I've been right about this or I've been saying this, but I, for, I think for two years on this podcast, I've been saying, you know, you know, Dylan Carlson cannot hit right-handed pitching. I mean, and he, he just can't. And, you know, look at the numbers or just watch a game. He cannot hit right-handed pitching. And you just you're not a major league regular if you're the the weak side of a platoon, um, and that's what he is. He is a decent defensive player too. So he's a, he's a defensive sub and the weak side of a platoon, and that's about the uh, lowest end of an outfielder you can be. So that's that's a fifth outfielder, and that's what Dylan Carlson is. Um, Raymond Sendejas asks. Is there any scenario where the Cardinals dismiss Ollie Marmol? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we kind of touched on this a minute ago. Um, I mean, they have a hair trigger at this point. I mean, we don't we don't even know why they dismissed Mike Schill, do we? Like, <laughs> no, I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he he crossed Mo once and Mo said, you're out of here, sir. Um yeah, I I think so. Um, and uh, you know, they're the the field manager is uh is a middle manager functionary of the front office, and so um, you know that's a big part of it is you know they're there to execute the um, you know the the overall vision of the front office, and of course that is very much in line with the you know budget and everything that's been laid out by the Dewitts. That's kind of the you know, that's the structure that, you know, we really have there. 
So, um, so that's a, that's a component of it, of course, is, you know, if, if he was not executing the structure that's there, um, you know, but I think the interpersonal stuff is very real as well. And it sounds like that was a big part of the situation with, with Schilt. And so, you know, if, if he is causing significant friction with the other employees, things like that, um, I don't think they would hesitate to let him go, um, so yeah, I, I think there's uh, very much, I, I don't think it's imminent by any means, but at the same time, um, you know, if he were to uh, do something ag egregious, I, I think they could act very quickly. And so um, after what we saw with Schilt, if something uh, happened quickly in a moment, I would not be very surprised to see on my Twitter feed, uh, uh, there's a news conference at 3 p.m. today, <laughs> and, and that's what it was. What about you, Ben? Uh, yeah, I think it would have to be something more in the traditional human resources sense, you know, like with apparently what happened with Schilt for them to get rid of him. Um, right. we, I, we can I, I don't think that like Ali Marmol worked here from this date to this date. Yes, yes. I, I don't think that they like, you know, if it's June 20th and they're 10 games below 500, I don't think they're going to fire him. You know, like, I think he's going to, uh, you know, be allowed to manage through the end of the year and and at least start next year. Like, now, maybe if they just completely fall off a cliff and are really, really terrible and he loses the clubhouse, but that just seems unlikely to happen. Uh, Buck Webb at Dear Spider asks, or states first, I miss Yachty. So do I, Buck. So we, um, as do we at, all. Yes. Uh, and and Buck asks, will Iowans still be able to watch the Cardinals in July? Or do you think it will be better once Bali goes belly up? I mean, I think any of us would be lying if we said we knew what was going to happen with the whole kind of regional sports network thing. It's pretty... Um, it's pretty unusual and it's pretty unprecedented, but uh, I tend to think that there will be a method preserved for us to watch the games. Um, it's just not necessarily going to be your preferred method or necessarily at the price point that you want to pay. And that's something, too, that I think and frankly, I think over the years has gotten a little bit lost on folks and is sometimes a little bit misstated. Uh, you know, the reality is like you can watch the games um, and I hear a lot of people sometimes people say like, oh, I can't I can't get the games. It's like, well, you can you may not want to pay. You know what I mean? Like you don't you maybe you don't want to pay $70 a month for direct TV stream, which is the last like streaming service that still carries them, but it's there and you can pay for it. And it's you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, but but sure, Bally could go off that service and it could go away there. It could go, it could definitely completely go away. I tend to think it will remain available somewhere. It could be weird and super user unfriendly and um, cost prohibitive for many people, but I think it will probably exist in some form. So, uh, and just to bring everyone up to speed, you know, Diamond Sports, the Sinclair subsidiary that owns the regional sports networks that used to be Fox Sports, Fox Sports Midwest, they sold the naming rights and rebranded as Bali. Uh, we have Bali Sports Midwest. Um, 
they have missed some payments uh, like to Cleveland. Uh, I, I understand they have cured, they missed payments to the Padres. Um, they missed payments to the Twins. I believe they have cured their payments to the Padres, but they uh, may be trying to restructure the contracts with the Guardians and the Twins. And this is why that article that was on like fan cited or some other nonsense bleacher report, something like that, that said the Cardinals would be in trouble because of their high ratings. No, the Cardinals are not in trouble because of their high ratings. Um, you know, Diamond is going to make the Cardinals payments because the Cardinals have high ratings and they can generate revenue through ads on Cardinals games. And they're going to want to keep the Cardinals. Now, the wrinkle that is interesting to me is there's reporting that some of the larger creditors want them to focus on you know, the cable, but then also a streaming platform. Well, they don't own the streaming rights for all the teams that they own the cable broadcasting rights for. And so the Cardinals are one of those teams. So that could see the Cardinals perhaps pushed off of Diamond Sports and into another venue. Um, but, you know, it looks like they are still trying to maintain a viable business. And I think as long as they are doing that, a team like the Cardinals that has such high cable broadcast ratings uh, seems like it would be one that they would want to hold on to. So all of this is to say, I think the blackout is probably going to stay for folks living in Iowa. Uh, if you don't uh, subscribe to cable. Yeah. All right. Uh, the wallet inspector asks what needs to happen to rid the organization of the pernicious let them hit it mindset that has resulted in a staff of low K mid walk pitchers. Strikeouts need to become cheaper. And as the DeWallet inspector, I'm sure you understand why. <laughs> um, well, you know, Ben, I'm, I'm somewhat more hopeful than you. I, I do wonder if this year might be the tipping point. Um, and I just, I wonder if, between um and it's early but i the you know the the shift ban it's not a huge change but it, i think it is making a bit of a difference in terms of you know um ball you know more balls in play um and and just you know various changes to the baseball that happen every year etc i just i see the league through rule changes and just ways that the league is leaning on the scale, continuing to do things that make this technique that the Cardinals are trying to do just less and less viable. And I mean, there comes a point where th when they can't achieve their goal this way, their goal of winning 88 games and sneaking into the back door of the playoffs, they will abandon it. And, and so I think that's what will be the thing that does it. Um, and, you know, we might, you know, we, we just might get there. Um, and th the Cardinals are the only team pursuing this strategy. There is no other team that is like trying to, you know, to do this. And so, and I, I just think it, it speaks to the fact that it's not a good strategy. And, and so I just, I kind of see them have, frankly, having to, to abandon this soon. And also, I just don't see, I, I just think their whole pitching, I think pitching is just a mess up and down this organization. I don't think they know how to draft pitching. I don't think they know how to develop pitching. I really don't think they know what they're going after. 
I, I've said this so many times, even though that's how they pursue free agent pitching, which I totally understand and I think makes sense, I genuinely do not understand why they don't try to draft high strikeout pitching or pursue those guys in the international market. That seems to me like that makes so much sense because they could have those guys cost effectively and they could benefit from that there, but they don't even do that. So it's it's a mess. Um, but I, I but anyway, my short answer is when they can no longer win 88 games and sneak into the playoffs, that's when they'll they'll change that strategy. And and I would add to my snarky comment, it's it's the developmental pipeline as you've touched on. If they are able to successfully develop starting pitchers who can strike guys out, they will use them because they are cheap. Um, but that is something that they have not had much success doing, and and so something has to change on on that front one way or the other. Either Bill Dewitt needs to be okay spending big bucks for a starter uh, or the organization needs to figure out how to develop strikeout pitchers and and those are two kind of unstoppable forces and immovable objects so <laughs> i'm not sure uh what the what size of earthquake it would take uh to cause a change um now uh i am going to ask this question uh and i'm glad because we have uh, my partner, Ben Godar, the former author of Retro Birdos, uh, an expert <laughs> on, on things such as this. A lefty at Redbird Husker asks, who's your favorite obscure player in Cardinals history? My favorite player as a kid was Andres Galarraga, and I am fascinated by his brief stint with St. Louis in 1992. Yeah, I, I love this question too. Um, so now because he called out Andres Galarraga and I, so I Andres Galarraga I was really excited when the Cardinals got Andres Galarraga and that was like a very specific kind of acquisition where like there's a player who you really liked who played for another team and then your team gets that player like uh like when they got Pedro Guerrero too it was like oh my yeah. god we got Pedro Guerrero this is awesome right and with Guerrero it was like Guerrero had a couple like just awesome seasons for the Cardinals. Andres Galarraga did not. <laughs> he was garbage as a Cardinal. Um, uh, uh, so, so my mind then kind of went to just other like really fun guys from other organizations who then came in. And you know who the first person I thought of actually was uh, Fernando Valenzuela. <laughs> Yep, me too. I, the Andres Galarraga immediately triggered Fernando uh, Venezuela. Uh, yeah, who had, I think, and actually I looked it up because I knew it wasn't many. It was four games. Um, yep. Uh, or no, five games, five games. Uh, so very briefly, but yeah, just the like, oh my gosh, Fernando Valenzuela, who, first of all, he's still in baseball. And then, oh, he's actually going to be a Cardinal briefly. So that was like a cool experience um, to see that. If we're going just like really obscure, see this one isn't as fun now because he's kind of an obnoxious, he's, he is a completely obnoxious broadcaster now. But um, when I was a kid, I went to the ballpark on Rex Hudler day. <laughs> yeah. And then I had in my like childhood bedroom, I had, they had like a, they gave away like a life-size Rex Hudler growth poster. 
So like on the wall of my childhood bedroom for like, I think years, I had like a full size Rex Hudler poster up on the wall, just, you know, cause and not, not like I was a Rex Hudler fan or anything, but you know, it was like a life-size Cardinals player. So it was like cool enough. Yeah. That it was up, up on the wall in my bedroom. Um, so, so that was, I mean, that was another one that kind of came to mind. Um, I also like Geronimo Pena was like the first Cardinals prospect that like, I was like ever like, oh man, this guy, like he's super fast and like, he's got some, uh, like, like he's maybe got some pop and like, he was the first guy who I was ever like, man, this guy's going to be a superstar. And then he wasn't. And then the next season I was like, this guy's going to be a superstar. And then he wasn't. And there was like two or three seasons of that. And he didn't quite, uh, you know, didn't quite pan out. However, his son, very good. Yes. <laughs> very good. Uh, very, very good. Um, I, I think mine is probably, um, I'm going to go with Chuck Finley, who's not terribly obscure. Yeah. Um, but the, the reason that I really love the, the Finley acquisition is he, he was past his prime. They, they got him and, you know, it was just a full on Duncan reclamation project that helped propel the team to the postseason, And uh, but if you asked people, you know, like name the starters on the on the Cardinals and uh, and like in order for, you know, like the postseason when he, he was on St. Louis in 2002, if my memory serves me correct. And right. uh, and they acquired him also, I believe, to kind of help fill the hole. Uh, that was left by Daryl Kyle passing away. And so that, that was very sad, but they got Chuck Finley and it's like, Whoa, Chuck Finley, you know what I mean? But Chuck Finley wasn't, you know, all that great anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he wasn't bad, but like he wasn't the Chuck Finley you thought you were getting, but then you got the Chuck Finley that you thought you were getting. And, you know, he helped propose, propel them to the postseason. but you know, you just don't hear Cardinals fans throwing around Chuck Finley, uh, Finley's yeah. name all that often. And I feel like now that's 21 years ago. So it's an old, it's old enough to kind of be a deep cut. Uh, and also that's the year that they uh, acquired uh, Roland. Um, so he, it, we can tie it into to Scott Roland's hall of fame uh, election in an indirect way. Uh, Cause he was on the Cardinals when they, when they acquired him. So uh I'm going to go with Chuck Finley as kind of an obscure Cardinal that I, I was excited when the Cardinals got primarily because of the video games that predated that trade, like the 1990s, like video games uh, where you, you know, you could play with Chuck Finley. And I probably thought he was better than he was because of his video game ratings. Cause Lord knows, you know, I wasn't seeing the angels or the, or Cleveland play very often. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah. so I think I, my familiarity probably came through like Sega Genesis world series baseball and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and how could we not mention, um, you know, Bobby Bonilla who, um, Oh know, yeah. Like, uh, very, uh, very insignificant Cardinals career. And yet, um, his, his, uh, absence, uh, became like the, the most significant uh, uh, thing in uh, Cardinals history. He's, he's kind of the Wally Pip of, uh, of uh, Cardinals history in, in some ways. Um, oh, definitely. 
So um, yeah, anyway, anyway, um, great questions, everybody, as always, thank you so much. We love getting questions and um, having a chance to interact with everybody. So you can um, always uh, send those to us. Uh, Twitter is, is the way most folks do that at Cardinals Off Day. You can also email us uh, cardinalsoffday at substack.com. Um, um, ben, uh, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, what are you going to be looking for? Uh, I'm going to be looking for the ripple effect of the Young's activation to St. Louis, both in terms of creating a roster spot, uh, who goes down uh, as a position player, but then also how they use the Young. I, I, I've, um, I've got a pretty strong guess. <laughs> I, I'm sure you do, uh, but then also how like how are they going to use him? Um, you know, it sounds like from the reporting today, uh, Jeff Jones indicated that it sounded like the plan is to use Paul DeYoung as a shortstop and that they would move Edmund to make room for DeYoung when they started him. So it's it really kind of sounds like maybe he's going to be used against lefties and he and Edmund will be the middle infield uh, against uh, lefty starters. And so I'm interested to see how that plays out and of course, pulling for Paul DeYoung, but not holding my breath uh, on how well he will play this season. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I um, always pushing back against the Paul DeYoung haters. Obviously, the end of his St. Louis career has been not good. But I think um, assuming he's worked out some of the weirdness he had in spring training defensively, um, you know, has has remained a very strong defender through his career and a defender who can play shortstop who they do not have other than than um, Tommy Edmond and and frankly they need so just even just from the fact that he can play shortstop should be on this team and um, you know and hopefully can even just hit a little I mean every baseball team since time immemorial has had a guy who can play shortstop and not hit a lick at the end of the bench. And I think Paul DeYoung will um, continue on in that tradition in this, the final year of his uh, time with the Cardinals. Um, ben, I'm going to be watching the Atlantic League um, a little bit and keeping an eye on this designated pinch runner thing that they decided they're going to try. Um, just because it is reminiscent, of course, of uh, Herb Washington in the 1974-75 Oakland A's, which if folks don't know this story, aren't familiar with this, uh, Charlie Finney, Finley, the uh, uh, kind of lunatic owner of the A's of the mid-70s, uh, had a, a sprinter by the name of Herb Washington on the team for a little over a season. Uh, Herb Washington was only used as a pinch runner. Um, that was his whole job. He had never played baseball before. And it, so it was literally just, you know, it would be awesome. What if, what if we got a, a world-class sprinter on the team and we just brought him in as a pinch runner? I bet, man, I bet he'd steal like a million bases and we'd be, we'd be great. Uh, didn't exactly pan out that way, but they tried it. He got into 105 games. He stole 31 bases, but he was caught 17 times because it kind of turns out that you know, stealing bases is not just about being really fast. There's a lot of other sort of skills there too. And he, by all accounts, he like worked at it and, you know, you know, tried and, you know, was, uh, you know, improved in everything, but ultimately, uh, you know, was not really successful enough to make it worthwhile. So, you know, it's kind of been tried once before <laughs> without great success. So I'm really curious to see 
how that essentially really the same idea pans out, uh, you know, league wide here in the Atlantic League, um, uh, the uh, the incubator of crazy ideas that sometimes then do make their way all the way up to the American League or the American League, the well, the American League and the National League, the major leagues. Uh, ben, lastly, do you have an off day recommendation for folks? Um, I do, and we in keeping with kind of our encouragement that folks check out Baseball Savant. Um, I thought earlier in the week, Katie Wu at The Athletic had a good article. Its title is Why the Cardinals are Sticking with Tyler O'Neill in Center and What the Metrics Say. And it walks through what the Cardinals see in the player's underlying skill and why they think uh, Tyler O'Neill has the potential to be an elite defensive center fielder. And I thought it was a, a very interesting uh, article and one that would be of particular interest to Cardinals fans wondering uh, how the Cardinals are going about their decision-making with respect to who plays where in the outfield. All right. Uh, I've got another book this week. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reading uh, Winning Fixes Everything by uh, Evan uh, Drellick. Um, it's the, his book about, uh, the, the Astros and the kind of Jeff Lunau, uh, Astros years and, uh, obviously, uh, culminating in the, the sign stealing scandal and all of that. But, uh, it's, it's a really fascinating book. Um, uh, you know, even if you've, uh, I mean, all, all of us kind of, I think, know the, you know, the broad strokes of that story. Um, uh, Evan is a really good writer. Um, you know, not all baseball books are well-written. It's a really well-structured, well-written story. Um, uh, Lunau, of course, for Cardinals fans is a really fascinating character. And actually like the, I think the second chapter of the book is just called the Cardinals. And it just completely focuses on, um, you know, the Cardinals years. And then of course the kind of Chris Correa stuff comes up later on as well. So there's a lot of uh, Cardinals specific content there, um, you know, for Cardinals fans, if you're interested in that. And, and, you know, beyond just being about like the sign stealing itself, the book's really about just this, uh, you know, group of, uh, um, you know, kind of McKinsey swine who, you know, work for these fortune 500 companies and third world dictators. And, um, you know, basically, uh, this philosophy of pursuing, uh, every edge they can, um, and, uh, you know, every, uh, gray area with kind of no regard for the, you know, norms or, you know, you know, morals or anything, and just kind of where that leads them. And, and the, the sign stealing is kind of the thing that ultimately gets them in trouble, but it's really, it was just kind of part of the, the culture of the whole organization. So, you know, it's honestly, I feel like it's, this is probably a book that like people are going to be reading in just like business classes as well, because it just honestly is kind of a, just interesting, just in, in regards to, um, you know, how uh, an organization can almost rot when that's kind of the, the, the philosophy of it, you know, even when it's having success in a lot of ways. So, all right, Ben, anything else for folks before we uh, wrap it up? Uh, no, I think uh, we all agree that we are hopeful the Cardinals will play a little bit better baseball in the weeks ahead. Uh, although this West Coast uh, road trip coming up is not going to be an easy one. So we might be uh, getting into May, still not sure how good this team actually is. And that's a little worrisome. Yeah, yeah, agreed. It's always um, it's always nice when the results on the field 
match the uh, advanced metrics we're looking at because then people don't think that we're lying. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So, all right. Well, thank you, uh, everybody, and uh, we will be back with you on the next Cardinal Golf Day.